you can have a glass that's half empty or half full, and both are true. But the person who's going to always say it's half empty are the ones that always look for the negative in everything. And that's basically American policymakers right now. I'm going to instruct my Treasury Secretary to label China a currency manipulator, the greatest in the world. Game on here. A trade war between the United States and China is here. It's real at the stroke of midnight. We'll face tariffs and taxes to stop the cheating. No matter what China does, it's always half empty. For the past year, the United States and China have been locked in a trade war. Donald Trump launched the first strike in January 2018. He imposed a $53 billion tariff on mainly Chinese steel and aluminum. Tariffs on Chinese solar panels and washing machines followed. Trade wars are good and easy to win, President Trump tweeting early Friday morning. During the course of the year, $200 billion worth of Chinese goods became subject to U.S. tariffs for what Trump calls unfair trade practices. China wasted no time in responding to both actions with its own levies on U.S. goods, adding up to nearly the same amount. Cooler heads prevailed at the end of last year when Trump met with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit in Argentina. The two leaders agreed to a 90-day truce in which they would try to work out their differences. Now, we're still waiting for news of any breakthrough from these talks, but the Chinese Commerce Ministry has been giving us some details, describing the talks as extensive and thorough, and saying that progress was made on issues including forced transfers of technology and intellectual property rights. As talks between the US and China have progressed, both have extended that deadline in order to work out an agreement. What is at the heart of this dispute? And what does victory look like for both sides? Anne Lee joins me today to answer those questions. Ann Lee is a professor of economics at New York University and a former investment banker in high-yield bonds and technology stocks. She is the author of the books, What the U.S. Can Learn from China and Will China's Economy Collapse? Ann, can you put the U.S.-China trade dispute into context? Why tariffs and why now? Well, let's look at the whole U.S.-China relationship. Uh, It was originally... Uh, started because the U.S. wanted a counter to the Soviet Union. And so it was always uh, one where the U.S. was just looking after its own interests, and it thought that by using China as a way to counter the Soviet Union, uh, it could break down the Soviet Union, which in some ways it worked really well, because that's what happened. So since then, the U.S. basically uh, has put it on the back burner in terms of what its intentions are with China because other foreign policy issues uh, came to the forefront, uh, namely the Middle East. But I would say with the Trump administration, since Trump spent a lot of time in parts of the country that got hurt by U.S. companies moving their manufacturing offshore, he basically got elected on the promise that he was going to make America great by bringing back manufacturing uh, to those parts of the country that suffered the most. And so it was largely on economic grounds and promising economic benefits to these people. Basically, what was ignored was all the benefits that the U.S. did get out of the relationship with China over the last 40 years, namely record stock markets uh, and record profits by U.S. companies, 
uh, record low prices in consumer goods in almost everything you can see on store shelves so that there was very low inflation in the U.S. despite heavy money printing by the Federal Reserve and the banks and all involved. And so it was a populist appeal that Trump had with China. And so he wanted to show that he was doing something for them. Imposing tariffs was his way of showing uh, that he was a deal man, an action man. When in reality, tariffs really don't make sense, right? Because it doesn't bring back the manufacturing jobs. What it does, it actually hurts U.S. companies that have outsourced their operations over there. If this continues, it clearly would harm the U.S. economy a great deal. What has not been discussed in the U.S. media really is that it's not just an economic issue. You actually had a group in Washington that was already feeling a desire to hit back on China, and this has been growing over the years, and it started in past administrations, because they basically were fearing that another country could eclipse the U.S. in power, whether it's economic, political, strategic, et cetera. And they saw an opening here with Trump uh, to latch on to this anti-China rhetoric in order to force their agenda, which is actually more security-oriented and less about economic opportunity. In the final analysis, whether we get this trade deal or not, I do think that tensions will continue to ratchet up, and I do feel that uh, there will be a continual decoupling between the two economies. But is this really about the United States and China? Because the the things that Trump has pointed out and is is accusing China of in terms of unfair trade practices, you mentioned espionage. Um, the other thing is obviously China has a different economic system than we have here in the United States, where they have lots of state-owned enterprises. Um, this is a complaint that the European Union has had. This is a complaint that the Japanese have had, both on the espionage front, but also how China conducts its economy. They feel like there's not a fair advantage for their businesses to come into China, but China's able to send out a lot of its exports around the world. So those complaints certainly, in some cases, are warranted. But in China's defense, According to the WTO, it basically said that developing countries uh, can procure technology transfers and use them for their own development. Uh, so China is not the only country that does this. India does this too. And yet we don't hear any complaints against India or many other developing countries who practice the same thing that China does. Um, and this rule in the WTO was largely in place because it was to help developing countries, you know, come up the development scale. It's the whole adage of you want to teach someone how to fish, not just give them fish. You know, China was basically abiding by those rules. And the U.S., for whatever reason now, has decided, okay, it doesn't like those rules and wants to change it. But they realized that changing rules in the WTO would be extremely difficult because all the other countries, like the Indias of the world, are going to push back on it. And so therefore, Trump decided, let's just act unilaterally because it's just going to be too hard to deal in a multilateral forum. How would you categorize China's opinion in the sense that 
you know, the United States has clearly taken a very aggressive posture towards China and tariffs and its economy. What has China's response been? So China initially was very indignant, right? They basically created a tit-for-tat response to the tariff situation. But we've seen them ratchet that down. Like, they've no longer continued the tit-for-tat. They basically realized that if this is really going to turn into a trade war, it's going to be very serious because the two largest economies in the world consist of basically 40% of you know, world's GDP in trade. And if you have a complete decoupling there, that is serious depression level looking business dynamics that we're faced with. So I think they decided, okay, let's try to be the bigger party and try to act more statesmanlike and just come to the table and try to figure out how we can uh, work with the U.S. to close these gaps in understanding in terms of how we conduct trade and and other areas. They certainly potentially could have more to lose given that they are not the world superpower. But that's not to say that the U.S. wouldn't face severe losses too if this were to go forward. I want to pick up on that in terms of bargaining power. You know, you said that China, you just noted that China has been acting very statesmanlike. And I don't think that there's been enough focus on the fact that China holds $3 trillion in foreign currency reserves. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about if China actually wanted to really push back to the United States, how much damage could it actually do? So the damage, in my opinion, is not from the foreign currency reserves. So to explain what that is, foreign currency basically is like you have a pile of money and you want to deposit it into a bank account. So you can either choose to put it in Citibank or Wells Fargo or, say, Chase Bank. Now, where do you want to park your money? Well, if you park it with Citibank, and let's say that's U.S., uh, you can park it there. And if you decide to take it out, you know, because you're basically concerned that Citibank is raising its interest rates or you don't like some of its policies, fine. You can take it out, but that doesn't mean that Citi's going to actually change its policies on its deposit interest rates. So that's the kind of leverage China has. It could actually park the money in EU bonds or some other way, some other place, Russia bonds, who knows. But I don't know if they really have that much leverage to affect U.S. policy, because if they were to sell that $3 trillion, the U.S. Federal Reserve can actually purchase all of that, which is what it was doing during its quantitative easing during the financial crisis. It was buying up all these other financial assets in the trillions and putting it on its own balance sheet. So if China were to do that, the U.S. could absorb it. So I don't think that's actually a leverage China has. The leverage China really has is that its manufacturing uh, capabilities, its technology, This is stuff that a lot of companies around the world depend on. And while the U.S. wants to say, oh, our companies can rebuild supply chains elsewhere and find suppliers elsewhere, the fact of the matter is it's going to take years for them to do that because the supply chains that have been created coming out of China took four decades to create. 
it's very easy to tear them down, but to rebuild them somewhere else is going to take a very long time. And in that period of time, China will continue to advance. U.S. companies could actually go bankrupt, lose a lot of profits, lay off people because they can't compete. And uh, it's going to fall further behind. And I think that would be a self-inflicted wound. So I think that's actually where the problem is. And there have been no estimates about you know, what kind of damage it's going to do for America's imports coming out of China. Uh, it's, it would be significant, and this is why no one's talked about it. People are not talking about the fact that uh, the U.S. would be severely damaged because perhaps they're worried that there would be too much pushback from uh, the American community. I think that a lot of people uh, are hopeful that there will be a deal and that things could be would be business as usual. Clearly, the stock markets have indicated that. However, what people are missing is that in Washington, they have a very different idea of what they want, right? They are very concerned about the rise of Chinese supremacy. And so this is something that they don't probably want to openly admit because it doesn't sound very liberal, especially to a lot of progressives that are uh, in the American population. And therefore, they omit to to talk about this in in most mainstream media. In terms of um, Chinese supremacy, obviously, the rise of China is definitely a point of concern for for Washington and American policymakers. Um, but as you've written extensively, Chinese, China's economy has slowed down quite a bit. Could you talk about where China's economy is headed and how this trade war has affected it? So China's economy has slowed down. And a lot of American commentators have incorrectly, in my opinion, pinned that on the trade war. When in fact, what's really happening is that the Chinese policymakers have decided to deleverage their economy, which means that they have told their state-owned banks to not lend as much to certain businesses and have cracked down on their shadow banking system in order to cut the loans to these various companies in order to manage the debt levels across the board. What, what this uh, ends up creating is a lot of bankruptcies because if a lot of companies can't roll over their debt, then obviously they can't pay it back and they have to file for bankruptcy. And the Chinese policymakers have used this opportunity to consolidate different manufacturers. So in different provinces around the country, they may have their champion steel manufacturer, for instance. And by deleveraging uh, this industry, and having a number of these steel plants go under, they can consolidate those assets into one or two big companies as opposed to having a bunch of them competing with each other, creating more debt and becoming very unprofitable and creating a lot of surplus in these commodities that nobody needs. So so that's the way they're trying to clean up their economy and streamline it. Uh, They also were very concerned about the real estate getting out of hand. 
And so a lot of leverage was cut to a lot of these developers. And Xi Jinping actually publicly said that real estate is for living, not for speculation. But too many wealthy Chinese people were basically using their money investing and speculating in real estate so that you have all these empty buildings sitting everywhere where they don't rent it out because in China they view brand new real estate holdings as more valuable than ones that have gone under wear and tear from renting. So China basically, you know, had a big problem with all these real estate speculators. And the authorities said, okay, let's find a way to stop this activity. And so one of the ways is to do leverage. And of course, when you do that, it causes developers to go out of business. Uh, People stop buying all these homes, and therefore that also slows the economy. So I would say that has actually had a much bigger effect on China's slowdown than, frankly, the trade war. I heard um, that Xi, when, I mean, the way that we look at the way that President Xi is approaching trade and the economy, um, we're looking at it very much from a global perspective. And I've often heard that she's much more concerned about internally in China. What do you think about that? She has uh, a lot on his plate. <laughs> he clearly is very concerned about the domestic politics and the domestic economy. And I do believe that's actually in the forefront. But he is not so oblivious to what's going on internationally. And so he clearly, I'm sure, is putting U.S. trade relations uh, on the top of his agenda as well. So he, I think, is basically treading, you know, on a very tight rope, trying to balance all the different interests and demands on his time. But he has one thing going for him is that he has consolidated a lot of power under him domestically so that he probably can rely more on his other policymakers and leadership to to focus on domestic issues um, while he tries to, I guess, calm the waters internationally. China is ripping us off. You know who's getting the oil? China. What China is doing to us is horrible. When Trump visited China in April of 2017, President Xi really rolled out the red carpet, literally. He called it a state-plus visit, where no U.S. president had been feted in the way that Donald Trump was. Much of that was to win Donald Trump over in anticipation of how he would deal with China on trade and its economy. Did she get Trump wrong? I think that she and the entire uh, Politburo got Trump wrong because what they got wrong was that Trump is not the only one that makes foreign policy decisions. They basically forgot that Washington establishment makes policy decisions in foreign policy, and they probably did not see that coming. They put all their eggs in one basket. When, in fact, you have so many neoconservative think tanks in Washington that have been crafting foreign policy long before Trump got into power, and they're basically using Trump as a way to enable their policies at this point. These are the people that China has uh, forgotten and, and forgot to deal with to their own peril. And so now you have 
uh, this tension out in the open simply because they did not know how to deal with this faction of, of American politics. In terms of how the U.S.-China trade negotiations end, what does a successful outcome look like? Uh, is one possible? <laughs> so I think this is a very difficult one to answer because even if the Americans get almost everything they ask for in this deal, I am quite sure that the Americans will come up with even more things to complain about afterwards because that has been the pattern coming out of Americans. They have been complaining about China for decades now. So even if they do eke a deal here, China is going to fall short somehow. And given that it's such a large country, I have no doubt that it would be impossible for China to enforce every little thing that, that they would have negotiated. So if they said, yeah, no tech transfers, and there might be one instance of a company that does that, and Xi Jinping has no oversight over it, the Americans are going to basically say, oh, it's all on you. Uh, because I said the, from the very beginning, this is not about uh, complaining or rectifying uh, economic policies or trade policies that they found um, needed to change. It's really more about the actual nature of the relationship. They don't want China to become more powerful economically, and therefore they think that translates into political power. And so really, it's more about a reflection of the U.S. way of seeing the world, because the U.S. way of seeing the world is very binary. It's like, it's either we're on top or else we're going to be losers. Very zero-sum. Exactly. So unless the American policymakers can actually redefine what it means to uh, remain a superpower, which in my mind, means sharing power with rising powers like China and India and other countries to uh, achieve global goals such as climate change issues and, and other transnational goals that the U.S. cannot do by itself, then we will never find any solutions. And so I think this is where the, the Americans have to be very honest with themselves about, you know, what is really realistic, what is really in the American interest as well as the global interest um, and not make it this narrow zero-sum, you know, who's, on, who's number one and who's not. And as we wrap up, we like to ask all of our guests this question, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that there are a number of very smart, bright uh, people here in America who also understand the complexity and the nature of what has, hap what has gone wrong in American politics. And we're seeing that from progressive voices that have been elected into Congress. We're seeing it from some of the people who have tossed their hats to become presidential candidates, even uh, folks who are not necessarily politically active that way, but are academics like myself and uh, journalists who will raise these issues. I think this is where there is hope for change and pushback on the current trajectory that we're going down. We need to figure out a better way to, to work with China 
a relationship that can continue to flourish. Because as much as we've enjoyed superpower status since World War II, the world is much more complex now. And thank you so much. Thank you. That was Ann Lee, professor of economics at New York University and author of Will China's Economy Collapse? And What the U.S. Can Learn from China. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. PS Podcast is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.